In the name of Jesus, Amen. Dear Saints, here we are at the beginning of a new church year, and we're gathered to learn about Christ's humility. We hear the gospel lesson proclaim, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and riding on a donkey. And we meditate upon this text at the, very, at the start of every church year. Uh, but to be honest, if it were up to me, I probably wouldn't have chosen this text. At least it wouldn't have been my first choice. Honestly, I would have chosen a text where Jesus fulfills, in my mind, a more significant prophecy, or I would have tried to find something a bit more exciting or more powerful than this. I would have tried to pick a text that's more relevant to the season of Advent and in preparation for Christmas to start the church year in this way. But the truth is, is that there is no prophecy or fulfillment more significant to start Advent or more relevant to Christmas. And there is no other text more powerful to start the church here than Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. In fact, this text is so important, it's included twice a year in the lectionary. We hear it twice. You hear it for the first Sunday of Advent, and then you hear it again for Palm Sunday, the first Sunday of Holy Week. So on this first week of the church year, we're meditating upon the last week of Jesus' life. And I know that a lot of you come from churches uh, that use the color blue for Advent, and some of you prefer the color blue because it looks pretty. I, I agree. Uh, but the reason we use violet here at Zion, and the reason churches throughout the world, throughout all time, have used violet before us is because it shows the strong connection between Advent and Lent. Just as Lent is a season of repentance that prepares us for Easter, so too Advent is a season of repentance that prepares us for Christmas. And the reason we do this and the, the, the reason we meditate upon the gospel lesson for today is so that we remember why Christ was born in the first place. To die upon the cross and take away the sins of the world. The reason we begin the year with this text is because it records Jesus' final entrance into Jerusalem right before his long-awaited crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. This text unites Advent and Lent, Christmas and Easter, Bethlehem and Jerusalem, the crib and the cross, the womb and the tomb. So there's no better way to start the church here than with this text. Because the entire year, indeed our entire lives, revolve around that singular event that took place on Calvary 2,000 years ago. The reason we make the cross the focus of every season, every sermon, every hymn, every study, and every year is precisely because the cross of Christ and his bitter suffering and death is the focus of the entire Bible. It's the focus of all of the scriptures. They testify about him and what he has done. When we do this, we're doing exactly what all the apostles did and what the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, For I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
I remember talking to a pastor one time from another church who uh, criticized me, saying that my preaching was not relevant. Uh, mostly this was because I didn't have a sermon series on an important topic or something engaging like Star Wars or the Avengers or something like that. Uh, I, I told him, I go, that's not quite true. I do have a sermon series. It's a year-long sermon series on Jesus, and we do this every year. Uh, he wasn't amused, right? <laughs> uh, but the truth is, uh, to be honest, what is more relevant than sin and Christ dying for sin? Are any of you without sin? Then this is relevant to all of you. Is anyone in the world not affected by sin and guilt and sorrow? Is death irrelevant to anyone? Even more, is the blood of Jesus irrelevant? Is there something more important than the forgiveness of sins? Is there anything that we can talk about in this church, in this hour, in the Bible that doesn't find its fulfillment in Christ? Is a hymn worth singing if it doesn't praise Jesus for his death and his resurrection to give us salvation? Is it worth driving? Seriously, is it worth driving all the way? Some of you come from very long distances. Is it worth driving all the way here on a Sunday morning to, to hear a sermon or to sing a hymn or to be in a service that doesn't preach the forgiveness of sins that Christ won for you? Is it worth it? We begin the church year in this way, in this very way to remind me to remind you, to remind everyone who steps in this church what's about to take place for the next 52 weeks. The suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus will be our focus. We will not remove his cross from our eyes. And this, dear saints, is our treasure. This is what we will never give up even if the world threatens to take it from us and take our lives, we will not let go. This is what is worth more than all of the silver and the gold in this world. The very words you heard today are your life and salvation. It's what makes you a Christian. Listen, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and having salvation. But why do we need this? Why do we need to learn it every Sunday? Why do we insist upon it? Well, it's because more often than not, we slip into this thinking that our own goodness, our own works, our own conduct, our own behavior, our intentions, our motivations somehow contribute to our salvation. It's true, we may not say it out loud, but deep down inside, we will sometimes feel this way. We look around at this awful and godless culture and society and this world, and we come to the conclusion that God somehow must love me because of something that I've done, because I'm obviously different and better than the world. And that may be true, right? It may be true, in fact, it, it is true for the children of God. God's children do behave and speak and act better than the unbelieving world. The Holy Spirit produces good works in you. But as true as that is, 
The temptation is to think that God is gracious and kind to us, forgiving our sin and having mercy upon us because we have earned it somehow. And we may think that we've earned this, maybe not totally, but at least in part, at least a little more than the heathen outside the church, that we've earned it just a little bit more. There's some reason I'm in here and God has forgiven my sins and some reason that they're not, and it's in me. We fall into this thinking that we somehow deserve heaven a little bit more than anyone else does, that we deserve Jesus and what he did, and for that reason we we become complacent and bored of it, and that we're more inherently righteous than others, and we think that we somehow add with our good works to our own goodness. But this is offensive to the honor of Christ. It robs Christ of his glory. Whenever you say that you contribute to your own righteousness, even in the smallest amount, when you believe that you somehow merit God's love, when you feel as if God loves you because of some reason in you, because of some good quality in you, you're saying that Jesus' work on the cross was somehow incomplete. And it was only partially what you need. You're saying, look, I didn't need all of Jesus' blood. I didn't need all of his agony and all of his good works. I just needed a little bit or, or some of it or, or most of it, but certainly not all of it. That's not all my fault why he was on the cross. I just needed a little nudge in the right direction. I just needed a little help. And in doing so, you rob Christ of his glory and you rob yourself of the comfort of his salvation. Listen to what the Old Testament lesson says for today. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Did you hear that? The Lord, our righteousness, all of it, not your good works, not your good intentions, not your pure heart, not your good effort, not your decision or your devotion. The Lord is our righteousness firmly, securely and perfectly our righteousness. Your righteousness is not what you have to offer before God. Your righteousness is Jesus and Him alone. You have no righteousness apart from Him. He is your only righteousness and every drop and ounce of it. When God became man, He came to take your sin into Himself and to suffer all of God's wrath in your place. He came not to just give you righteousness, but to be your righteousness. And even though you may not see or feel or experience that righteousness, even though you may still feel your sin and sorrow and still experience death that will come, Christ has hidden your righteousness and goodness and holiness and eternal life in himself, in his lowliness, in his wounds, just as he has hidden his victory over death beneath the veil of defeat on the cross. And through faith, you find your righteousness in Christ, in the lowly advent of Jesus the Lord who takes away your sins. 
Through faith, you present Christ to the Father as all of your righteousness, as your perfection, as your way, your key, your ticket into heaven. You don't point to not one of your good works, not one of your deeds. You point to the wounds of Jesus and say, this is why I should be here. And dear saints, since your righteousness is Christ, this means that your righteousness will not fade or change. No matter where you go or what you go through, your righteousness remains the same. With faith in Christ, you will remain perfect in the eyes of your dear Father in heaven. The goodness of your heart won't make your righteousness better. And the poverty and sinfulness of your heart won't make your righteousness worse. Because Jesus Christ is your righteousness himself, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Weak faith won't make Christ less righteous. And strong faith won't make him more righteous. Christ is your righteousness. And since he won't change, your righteousness won't change either. That is why Jesus was born. To die, to resurrect, and to be your righteousness forever. Before closing, I want to address one more thing. If you've been at Zion for more than one Sunday, you'll know that I haven't really taught you much today. In fact, I'm fairly certain that all of you already knew what I was going to say in this sermon. You knew the text. You knew the hymns that are signed for the day. You knew what I was going to say. Nothing is surprising. Nothing is groundbreaking. Nothing's innovative or creative. And you may even think that I go on and on and on about this subject, about Jesus and his cross and his death and his forgiveness of our sins. But the reason I do it is because one of these days, for many of you, I am going to stand beside you at the hospital or in your home in the hour of death. I may not be there for all of you. It may be your loved ones or another pastor or a friend. But for most of you here today, I will be standing there when you die. And I want this affirmation, this central doctrine to be so clear in your minds, so repeated in your hearts, that in the midst of all of the commotion, the breathing machines, the feeding tubes, the beeping and the noises, in the midst of all of the, the regrets and the sin that come rushing to your mind and flooding your heart with all these feelings, I could just lean down and speak into your ear and say, remember, remember, Christ is your righteousness. Remember, don't despair. Don't give up. Look to Christ. You see, the day will come when neither you nor I have the time for me to teach you about sin and death and righteousness and all these things. The day will come when we won't have time to go through all the ins and outs of justification and what God has done. The hour will come when we don't have the time to open up the Bible and give a great big lesson and study on what it says. 
This must be cemented in your soul, engraved and etched into your hearts. So that when you look into my eyes and you hear the first sound coming out of my mouth, you're going to know immediately what I'm going to say. And you will know exactly what I'm about to preach to you. I don't preach Christ and him crucified to you because you don't remember what it is. I preach Christ and him crucified to you so that you never, ever forget it. And on that day, in that final moment, when I am there with you, you may not even have enough energy to repeat it or say it yourself. But you may use the final ounce of your life, the final breath you have in you to simply say, yes, amen. That is true. I have it. I believe it. And then you can die in peace, in confidence, in Christ, which cannot be moved or shaken. So dear Zion, as we begin this new year in the Lord, may God bless you and strengthen your faith. May God bless you and open up your ears to take all of these words to heart so that they last with you until that final day to repent of all of your sin and to let go of it, leaving it at the foot of the cross and to find your righteousness in Christ Jesus and in Christ alone. Amen. Hear the words of this hymn. Rejoice, O Zion's daughter. Behold, your king has come. The lamb ordained for slaughter, the humble, righteous one. And having free salvation, he speaks eternal peace and ruling every nation. His reign will never cease. Has darkness come upon you? Are you in sin's control? This light from light has won you forgiveness for your soul. Nor find in him your effort, nor seek in him your will. His gospel is your comfort that bids your sins be still. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.